Mike, thank you for coming on. So we have Mike Summer, uh, Wax Pack Hero, one of, I, I, I think, a similar era of uh, sports card content creators. I know your podcast started around 2019. Mm -hmm. I think I was on episode like 32. I think I looked it up earlier. I was on like one of the early 30 uh, yep. episodes. So that was, I mean, that was great. I really appreciate that back in the day. I mean, uh, so I guess we'll kind of start there. Like for you, like where, when did content kind of come into the fold when it came to sports cards and all that kind of stuff? And uh, how did you like, yeah, how did you start doing content around sports cards? And I'm um, interested to hear about that. Yeah, so it, it really stems back to when I re-entered the hobby back in twenty late 2015, early 2016 is when I kind of rejoined the hobby world. And I always tell people, you know, it didn't take me too long to realize that if I wanted to collect the way that I did as a kid, that I was going to have to do something different, right? So much had changed from when I was collecting in the 80s and 90s to the way things were in the in the mid 20 teens, right? The 15, 16. And so I it took me a while to really kind of get my feet underneath me to figure out what collecting was like. You know, this idea of tops being the only licensed manufacturer, the exclusivity, right? That that existed at that point. That was completely new to me. And the cost of product was new to me. The idea of hit chasing was new to me, right? Because when I collected as a kid, everybody built sets and maybe there was a few insert cards that you would collect too. But this idea of hits in every box and chasing hits, all of this was new to me. And eventually I started to learn, a, you know, started to figure out ways where I could buy and sell a little bit to generate some profit to help cover the cost of the cards that I wanted to keep, right? Um, I, I started to figure out ideas like that that were working for me. I, I started to figure out how to navigate um, not just collecting by buying new packs and boxes, but by buying collections and um, doing some trades and making bulk purchases and things like that. And so I, I was also at the same time consuming as much card related content as I could. And at that time, it was mostly podcasts. There weren't really too many YouTube shows out back in 2015, 2016. And so I was consuming content and some of the content creators that I was listening to podcasters that I was listening to were folks like sports card radio. And one of the things that they always talked about is, Hey, it's one thing to buy and sell cards, but there's another thing where you can create passive income by creating content around cards that people can consume 24 hours a day, click on affiliate links, you know, see the, the ads from your blog. And so I, they were one of the primary inspirations for me starting to, to create a blog or thinking about if I was going to do this, what would it be about? And then from a, from what I wanted to speak about, it was really, Hey, there's gotta be more people like me who collected as a kid and are now re-entering the hobby here, you know, 15, 20 years later, who are going to be in that same situation, realizing so much had changed. Maybe I can share some of the things that I've learned along the way over these last couple of years so that other people coming in will have a resource to go to to help ease that transition back into the hobby world. And so I started with a blog, with the Wax Pack Hero blog. I think it was in 2017. Um, and so it was a couple of years even before I started the podcast where I started with, with just the blog and starting to engage people um, on social media. And so I would I started to write some articles and I would get some feedback from some other well-established bloggers and writers like Ryan Cracknell from Beckett, Eric Norton from Beckett, 
Um, Joey Shriver, uh, Shriver from Dub Mentality, maybe is better known as Dub Mentality. And I was right. reaching out to folks like that, Beans Ball Card Blog, other, other bloggers who are writing about cards to say, hey, here's this idea that I'm working on. Here's the concept I'm going for. I'd love some feedback from you guys on what what connects with you or what I might be able to consider and, and do a little different. And so from early on, that was the idea. I was reaching out, trying to get feedback on that idea. And I started to, to gain some traction and um, get some feedback from folks that they were finding value in those, those original articles that I was putting out on the, the Wax Pack Hero blog. Definitely. And yeah, I mean, when I was coming back into cards, like there was really, like you had said, there was really no content at all. Like that was sort of the one thing that I was, I guess, a little bit surprised by because I had sort of, I had been doing some content, like I had been doing a, like I was doing sports graphic design. I had ran a sports graphic design page where I was like doing, I was essentially doing what I'm doing now with content, but doing it with like, I was making like a sports design and posting on Instagram and trying to learn the Instagram algorithm and all this kind of stuff. And then trying to like learn about graphic design and stuff. So, I mean, I had come from like a content design ish background. And like when I was getting into sports cards, like, you know, the concept of like trying to figure out who, what, what rookie card was the first rookie card of a player was like, it was, it was like, there were no, there weren't any articles. Like there, there was like cardboard connections, you know, mm -hmm. there, like, it's like, like you said, you mentioned a ton of great names there. I mean, I also like drew from, let me get that photograph, like, um, Mojo breaks, like, you know, there, there are a ton of different podcasts and, you know, content people that I was, that I found along the way that really helped me. And I, I think you as well too. I mean, I think a lot of the content you create is really great. Like, is there, you know, let people know sort of like what the focus of your content is. Like, uh, do you kind of like what, 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 um, what's your niche, I guess, is one way to put it, I suppose. Yeah. I'd say the, the, the primary focus or the primary idea was trying to help ease that transition back in for somebody who is returning to the hobby sub focus or, or maybe what it's, what it's turned into now more is trying to highlight ways where somebody can have a self-sustaining hobby. So it was important to me. One of those things that I kind of talked about was though, if I wanted to collect the way that I, I wanted to collect, I didn't want to use all paycheck money to do that. I wanted to be able to, to have the hobby somewhat sustain itself. So I was incurring less out of pocket costs. And as I continued to do that, I continued to, to find opportunities to, to actually fully cover the cost of my collection. And so right now, 100% of my collection is, completely paid for through the profits of buying and selling other cards. And wow. all of the inventory that I have to resell is also already been paid for through profits, right? So my, my actual out-of-pocket cost to collect and build my vintage collection and build all my, everything is 100% paid for with, with profits from the, the resale side of things. And so I, I talk a lot about that type of stuff. I really like to highlight um, some sets and products that are somewhat overlooked or maybe they're not as as widely known about or as widely as, as popular. So a lot of the articles you'll see me do now are about some of these niche products um, and then some upper deck products. They're kind of a they, they provide me with some products to open and test out and write about. And, and so there's a lot of upper deck content and a lot of niche products that I, I write about now. Um, the podcast is similar that I, I kind of cover some of those things as well as highlight a lot of different super collectors 
um, people who have different focuses in, in their own collections, and then bring on industry representatives, people who work for different marketplaces, manufacturers, and things like that. So that's kind of what the, the podcast content is, is all about. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I, everything that you said there, I mean, I, 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 I agree with, I think that's one of the cool things about the hobby is that it can be like a self-sustaining hobby where I feel like if you're in other industries, you know, whether it's, I don't know, painting, or if it's like, you know, you build Legos or you do anything. I mean, there's so many different industries nowadays that are hobbies. Like I feel like the sports cards and it's interesting. I also think it's interesting that we have sort of just like planted our flag in the ground. Like we are the hobby. Like this is the hobby. Like I think mm -hmm. that's kind of like a funny little nuance to our, the sports card industry. It's like, there are so many other hobbies and we're one of the only ones that are really, you know, self-sustaining. And I, th I think the other great point that you made there is like that you are saying that like everything pretty much in your collection and that you have is all based off of like what you bought and sold and you're kind of breaking your, you've broken even. And I mean, I'm sure it, for you in some cases, like you've even probably made a little bit of like profit from like some mm -hmm. sort of things. And I mean, you put out a great, uh, one of your TikToks actually that you put out recently that I thought really highlights kind of a, a, a section of the hobby that I feel like maybe is not as talked about is like, I don't remember the specific card. I know it was like a tops basketball card that you talked about yep. that you sold for like 26 cents and you sold it like 200 times and you made $600. I think those were the numbers from it, but like, you know, talk a little bit about like, is that sort of like, I know you, is that sort of, we just kind of discussed niche a little bit, but is that something, is that something you enjoy doing or is that something that you kind of do so that way you can buy other cards? Yeah. So a, a little of both, right? So, and I, I talked about this in, a, in an upcoming article for um, Hobby News Daily, but that stemmed from when I came back in 2016, I still wanted to build sets like I did as a kid. But I went into my LCS and I was like, yeah, I'd like to see your, your hmm. box of singles for 20... Uh, 16, 2017 Donruss basketball or 2014, 2015, whatever year it was that I was, I was trying to fill out. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, like your monster box of, of singles so I can fill my sets. And he's like, Oh no, <laughs> hobby shops don't really do that kind of thing anymore. You know, like when I was a kid, you just go in and say, show me your 87 tops and you'd fill it out and pick out number 35 and 63 and whatever. So I was like, well, I want to still want to build a set, but I got to find a way to do that. And so I did some digging on, on message boards and searching the internet and found ComC and found sport lots as two sites where you could still buy base and insert cards to fill sets. Right. And so I started using it to buy, and then I would be getting these collections and buying bulk from people because around here, a lot of the people that I knew, they were only after hits. And so I'd be able to scoop up. Somebody would go into the shop and they would buy two or three boxes of some flagship product, whatever it is. And they'd only take the hits and the low numbered serial cards and the rest, they'd just shove in the dime box. And the shop owner would be like, you want that? I'll sell you the whole box for 30 bucks. And oh, so all right. of a sudden I, you know, I would be buying 2000 to 3000 base and insert cards for 30 bucks. And I'm like, well, this is great. I can fill my sets. And then I was like, now what am I going to do with all these extras? Well, maybe I can try to sell them on sport lots since that's where I'm buying stuff. And so that started building my inventory. And that's what started to generate some of those initial sales to help have that self-sustaining hobby. 
So that TikTok was an example of so many people still think that basin insert cards are worthless because set builders aren't the vocal people out there highlighting, right. look at me, look at me, I'm building all of these flagship sets or, or whatever, right? But there's a huge base of set collectors that still exist. And I'd made that TikTok to show, hey, here's one 1992 Topps basketball common card that after fees, after shipping, after everything all in, I profited or I sold, I made 26 cents on. And because everybody thought it was worthless, I paid less than a penny for it. And so I walked away with 26 cents. And not only that doesn't sound like much for one card, but I sold 2,350 of these cards, not that exact one, but similar base right. and insert cards on sport lots last month. And after all everything, I cleared over $600. And so, yes, I put in some work, but that's $600 that I now have to buy whatever I want to buy right. inside or outside of, of the hobby. And most people would have just dismissed it as not worth their time. Right. I was looking the other day, I'm up to almost 150,000 cards that I've sold on sport lots at wow. a minimum of 18 cents each. And most probably it's going to average closer to a quarter. So 25 cents times 150,000 cards over the last five or six years, that's a pretty decent chunk of change that's letting me build my hobby or my collection right. and letting me hobby for free. Exactly. So for, you know, those types of cards, like, are you, is it mostly like eighties, nineties, or is it like, is there also like, you know, some cards, more modern stuff that you're doing, or is it more of like, cause in, in, in my thought process, I would imagine the, you know, those nineties cards are probably a little bit harder to come by than some of the modern stuff. But like, is that what you're finding or is it, is it a lot more just kind of the kind of a combination of every, any year you can really think of? Yeah, vintage sells great. So any vintage things, anything kind of pre-80 sells great. Um, the the junk wax era cards, they're a little harder unless you have a ton of inventory because mm -hmm. there's so much, there is a ton of that that's already loaded on the site. But if you've got a, a wide variety of inventory, people will start to load those things in along with a lot of other things to kind of consolidate their, their shipping. From a modern perspective, Heritage and Bowman prospects mm. and flagship products just continue to sell great because there's so many set builders for Heritage. There's so many set builders for the Topps flagship products and prospecting is still, people love it, right? And so any any of the Bowman prospects, especially like first Bowmans, they sell really well on sport lots as well. Um, and then... Com C is a little bit different that that I buy and flip a lot of stuff on the site itself. Um, things that I send in are usually things that I buy in my bulk collections that um, retail for somewhere between a dollar and twenty dollars. Um, and I use them uh, especially for that kind of stuff because it really helps me scale without much effort. Right. It, it's still worth my time for sure to send it in, put it in a box and then price it when it gets on the site. But I don't have to do any of the packing shipping, you know, any of that kind of stuff for all of the cards. So ComC has been a great way for me to be able to continue to scale up because they do all the work. Yeah. And Ryan, uh, card collector too, is another guy that I kind of look up to from a, just a content perspective. I mean, he is, he's really stepped up his game. And I think one of the things that he talks a lot about is like going to shows and doing, 
uh, the like dollar box hunting. And I, I, I'm wondering from your perspective, like, is that something that you found also works for you? I mean, obviously there, you know, I don't want, I don't want you to give away your secret sauce here, but like, is, um, you know, is the dollar box hunting something that you have participated in, or is it something that you found to be a good way? Or is there a different way that you're doing, like you're sourcing your cards, I guess. Yeah. One of the biggest ways that I source them, um, well, there's a couple different things I'll say to that. So one of the continued growth and expansion of, of what I'm doing from a card perspective kind of built on itself in 2020 and I took over part of an existing card shop and kind mm. of now I on the weekends as a part-time effort I have a physical card shop that I run and that's one way that I source things because people bring them in and, and bring things in the door the other thing that I will typically do is look for big collections you know people who are looking to get out people who you know collected is a long time ago and are no longer interested and are just trying to clear space in their closets um, but no I love digging through quarter boxes and dollar boxes for overlooked stuff. Um, there's that's one of my favorite things to do at the national is dig through people's yep. quarter boxes that the singles club has their whole booth is everything's a dollar um, sitting there. And when I, when I belly up to the table at the singles club at the national and there's rich Klein, me, Dr. <laughs> Beckett and yeah. Bo from 1 million Cubs. And it's like the four of us all right next to us, to each other in a row going through these dollar cards. I feel like I'm in pretty good company looking through the dollar boxes to find some, some good value. So yeah, I, I love digging through the dollar box to find those small, buy it for a dollar, sell it for six or seven, you know, and, yeah, and kind of rinse and repeat and three, four or $5 profit at a time. When you're doing that hundreds or thousands of times a year, that, that adds up. Yeah, I work, I, I work with, um, well, I work with them for, with hobby hotline. So, I mean, obviously that's a phenomenal group of group of guys to be kind of like hanging out with. I'm sure like you guys are finding cards and pass them around showing each other. I'm sure that's probably a lot of fun. So like, you know, the, the, I, I, I do, I do feel like what you were saying about how like the set collectors, they kind it, it's not exactly something that is maybe as talked about, I mean, on social media, I mean, I guess it's, I don't know, I, social media cards and all that kind of stuff is, it can be a little bit weird because it seems like the the more, obviously the more flashy, the more, you know, engagement you get on social media. And, and some people are running it as a business. Some people are kind of just doing it for fun. Uh, I mean, from your perspective, like, how have you seen social media change because I you being a content creator I'm sure you're probably you know uh, pretty in tune at least within like trending stuff and I mean I try and talk about some trending stuff but also keep it to stuff that I'm interested in like I'm not going to talk about a trending topic if it's not interesting to me but but from your perspective like content creation all that kind of stuff how have you seen it change maybe since you got into like now uh you know comparing the i guess they're different eras but either way like how would you compare the difference in time periods yeah i, th I think what i've appreciated now and i don't know that it's changed so much as i didn't know where to look before mm. is that i think you can still find or you can find social media content for whatever genre that you're interested in pursuing and collecting and learning more about. I think if you rely just on the main feed of whatever platform you're using, you're going to see a lot of, like you said, the flashy cards, the high dollar cards, look at me, crazy, stupid antics, whatever it might be, right? That, that are just, I find annoying sometimes. 
Um, but I think what I've learned over these last couple of years is those types of things don't really appeal to me as a collector. Mm. And even right. the market that I am in from a buying and selling perspective. But if I look hard enough, if I search for them, I can find people that are creating content that are based on vintage, that are based on set building, that are based on collecting base and insert cards or player collecting, not just their all the cards serial numbered to 25 or less and one-on-ones, but are player collecting or team collecting for the base and inserts. And they want a thousand different cards of their favorite player, not just five or six super high dollar ones, right? And so I think the thing that I have realized is that that social media content does exist. The, the other people on social media that like those same things do exist, but you just have to find your niche and focus in on, on that and kind of around those aspects of the hobby and those aspects of um, hobby focuses that don't necessarily appeal to you. If it appeals to those other people, great, but it doesn't necessarily have to appeal to you and that's okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because sports cards in general have become, there's, it's almost like there's niches within like a niche and like, I am you know, just in general, like I've noticed like niche things that used to be considered like kind of like not popular, like not part of popular culture have like become popular part of popular culture. I mean, like, you know, we're seeing uh, social media stuff with like different cards selling and ESPN's writing articles and Forbes and all these things. And, you know, even just like sneakers and uh, anime and video games. And, and so like, those are kind of, you know, for me, like I, I like making the content. I, I, I enjoy talking about the kind of stuff. So like, it's definitely, definitely something that I found, you know, if you, you can follow as many social, you can follow all the hobby accounts you want, but like, it really does take a little bit of work to kind of find the type of content that you're interested in and like the markets and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, also for you, like the, I, I think a big thing now that is really cool is like a, a lot of people are getting a lot better. I think at telling like stories. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we're sort of writing the early stages of, you know, I, I, the comparison that I usually use when I've talked to people is like, where we have shifted for, it's like fantasy sports like when it shifted from uh like pen and paper to online like that's sort of i think the scenario we're in so like the the storytelling i think has gotten a lot better so i mean for you like is is that something that you spend any time on like thinking and like you know writing out scripts i mean i do it for like tiktoks and stuff like that but like how how in depth are you kind of in your content creation process when it comes to uh that type of stuff yeah, I really want to be able to tell a story, right? And and what I'm trying to tell is the story or the journey of my collection, right? And and part of that story is the things that I'm adding to my own collection. And part of my hobby journey is the story of me buying and selling different collections because that's what generated the money for me to be able to to buy the things that I'm buying and adding to my collection. So I, th I think that that is, is really huge. And I think it, you, you touched on something else there that I think it's important for people to know is it's okay to, to follow somebody, hear what they have to say. And if their message and their story and their content is resonating with you, great. Dig in, go deeper, try to build a connection with that person, reach out to them, interact. That's, that's a big piece. But it's also okay if you follow somebody for a while and you say, you know what? 
I don't really like the way that they're approaching things or the, the types of cards that they're collecting. That's not really what I want to do. It's okay to not follow them. Right. And, and I've done that as I have explored and tried to find out what different people are about. I've followed people for a while and then said, you know what, this, this really isn't the vibe I'm going for. Um, their stuff's not really for me and I've unfollowed it and, and I don't, you know, pay attention to them as much anymore. And I'll almost guarantee that there's people that have done that for me with the, right. the blog and the podcast, right? Like there are so many voices that are out there right now coming at it from so many angles. There's so much video content and, 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 um, show reviews and card reviews and there's so much stuff out there that there is truly a voice for everybody to connect with. And sometimes that's going to be me and sometimes it's not. And, and that's okay. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, like I said, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think along the way for me too, like content and like doing cards, I kind of was, I sort of created content the way that I learned how to, with that way I was learning about cards. Like I'd learn about a new thing and I would make a piece of content about it. Like that was sort of my content style. It's a little bit different now because I think I've had, I, I have a pretty decent grasp on the industry. So it's more of like maybe reacting to news and kind of predicting stuff that could happen in the future. But like I said, when, when I first got into this, it was a lot of like learning something and then talking about it. So for you, like has, what has sports cards and what is maybe sports cards and content creation? Like what is it, has it taught you anything? Like if you learned any lessons from the industry or, uh, you know, I'm interested to hear from your perspective, like what you think about that. Yeah. So I, I think there's a, I would say there's a couple things that the card industry as a whole or, or me being a part of the hobby, maybe that's a better way to say it. Me being a part of the hobby as a whole has taught me. Um, some are specific about cards and some are more specific about me and as a personality. Right. So first of all, the way that I tried to approach things as I came back in with the buying and selling that, that really highlighted for me the joy that I get from finding something that other people dismiss and see no value in and turning it into something valuable. Right. And so that is the, the profit that I've made from cards and the collection that I've been able to build from things that other people find as worthless, right? And so I love that process. And so you asked me earlier too about, do you enjoy the the selling, you know, 25 cent cards on sport lots? <laughs> the thing that I enjoy about it is I was able to take something that other people kind of cast off as worthless and turn that into thousands and thousands of dollars that I've been able to use for my collection. I love that process. Um, I found that I really enjoy some of these cards that are also a little bit overlooked, you know, some food issue cards, um, mm. you know, vintage isn't necessarily overlooked, but it's, it's different. It's it, until this last maybe year or so it was kind of not the thing to chase, right? There was a, a set of vintage collectors, but now it's kind of coming more on. But when I was building my vintage collection, it was not the popular thing to chase. I found that I love that type of stuff. Um, and I found that I really love content creation. You know, I, mm -hmm. I had never um, formally written articles and things like that. I had definitely never done a podcast or, <laughs> or YouTube videos or anything like that. I had minimal interviewing experience outside of like career related interviews that I, that I did at, at, you know, the, the company that I work for, but I found that I really loved that creating content and helping people learn and grow. I found that I really enjoy 
having those interview conversations for the podcast and, and the YouTube channel. Those are things that I really enjoy that I've been able to get better and better at as we go and um, kind of leverage into other opportunities in my day, in my day job and other things like that. Um, because of the skills that I've learned doing this hobby, I've, you know, I've, I've translated that into other aspects and other walks of life too. I mean, to, to think, to think that when I was a 10, 11, 12, 13 year old reading Beckett every week and pouring over every article to be <laughs> able to turn the experience from the blog into having articles published in Beckett, you know, like written that I wrote that are now in print, like distributed nationwide in a Beckett magazine. Like that's something I would have never dreamed as possible when I was a kid, but I've been able to see that come to fruition over these last few years as I've been creating content and engaging with the hobby community and, and just kind of having fun doing cards. Yeah. I mean that the, the story there they had at the end was that's extremely inspirational. I think the, the concept I think for a lot of people is that's kind of what it was like reading Beckett. It's like, and I mean, that's so it's, that's so cool that now that you've got, you've got articles in there. And I mean, I think it's, I mean, if you're a content creator or whatever, I think that there are, there's tons of opportunities, whether you're, you're, you're trying to do a show or, you know, writing a blog. So like, do you have any, do you have any advice for someone who's maybe trying to start doing something similar that you're doing that maybe is a little bit nervous? Like I, I, I definitely, I, I agree. Like when I first got into cards, I never, I was never a writer. I was a graphic designer. And, you know, the one, the classes that I hated in college were class where I had to write stuff. So like, you know, becoming more of a writer and doing like, you know, podcasting and, you know, internet, uh, internet, uh, interviewing and stuff like that. Like it definitely wasn't something that I expected really to come out of it. So like, I mean, from your perspective, like, do you have any tips for anybody that's maybe trying to get into the industry or, you know, even just any other industry, like what, like what are some tips you have on just like writing and kind of getting yourself out there a little bit more? Yeah, I think th there's a couple of things and none of these are, are original to me. They're all pieces <laughs> of feedback that I got and advice that I was given as I was trying to get started doing some of this stuff and are things that just I found a lot of value in and were, were true, right? As I tried to put them in practice and a couple of them is first, don't, my advice would be don't create content that is based on things that you just think are popular but you don't really have a passion about or care about, right? So create the content that is true to who you are and what you care about and what you're passionate about, even if you're not sure what the audience will be for that content. Um, because being authentic and being true to yourself, I think has to be the foundation of whatever type of, of content that you're going to create. The other, the next thing that I would say is as you get started, seek out feedback. Because regardless of how passionate you are about it, there's always things that we can learn about how to best communicate those things that we're passionate about. And so whether that is a YouTube channel, whether that is written content, whether that's audio only on a podcast, seek out feedback about what you're doing from other people who have experience doing that, because there are pieces of that that you can probably glean from all of that feedback. They're going to make you a better content creator and you can build on the success that you're already seeing and, and make your content even better. I think that's a, a huge piece that some people 
um, don't necessarily always always think about when it comes to to starting their content. Um, and then I think the third thing that is super helpful or that I found super helpful in um, getting started was engaging with others in the community. So being active mm. on social media, being um, proactive, reaching out via email or whatnot to um, connect with other collectors, connect with other content creators and start to, to take advantage of the hobby community that we've got to one, enjoy it all more, but two, to help other people get exposure to what you're all about. And, and by uh, engaging with them authentically and interacting with them and um, questions that they're asking or, you know, tweets that they might make, whatever it is, you start to help people understand and get exposed to who you are and what you're all about. And then they come and, and want to check out more about, you know, what you've done or what you've created. I think those are kind of three things that for somebody who's new or, or wanting to start getting into content creation, those are three things that I found super helpful as I was getting started a couple of years ago. Yeah. I loved your, I mean, your first tip there, I think was, is hit the nail right on the head. I mean, I think that's probably my top thing too, is like create, create content that you're interested in because I, at least from my perspective, I've tried it both ways and I definitely feel that like, I definitely feel that like building an audience that's interested in what you're, what you have to say. And it's, 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 I'm trying to, I've always tried, I've tried to figure out a way to explain it. Like you, you want, I, like I found, I found it better to create, uh, um, grow your audience because they're, they want to listen to what you have to say, not what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I guess that's sort of, mm -hmm. oh, I, I don't know if that's explaining it the best way, but I think it's like, you, like you, you, you almost find yourself, you know, when you get to a point sometimes when you try and just find trending topics and write about stuff that maybe you're not interested in that, you know, will get clicks. It almost just, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel fun at that point, mm -hmm. I think. And like, so like growing, growing your audience based on kind of you as a person rather than what you're saying is kind of my, that, that's my top tip in general. Mm -hmm. Like, and like I said, yeah, for, I think you, you nailed it. Like, being authentic to yourself and creating content that's authentic to kind of what you're interested in, I think is like a major tip. And like, especially to like, I think at first people may get discouraged because you know, the views or the numbers aren't as big, but I think what I found at least is that if you are creating the stuff that you want to create, the numbers eventually come down the road because you're not as, you're not as focused on the numbers. So like the, the creation should be the fun part, I guess, which it, for me, it's kind of a combination of both. Like I enjoy the creation of the content, but I also kind of enjoy the reaction to some of the stuff. So it's, it's, it's a con it's definitely a combination of, of both for me. And I mean, we'll get, we'll, we'll get back into sports cards a little bit here. So like from, from your perspective, like, can you know, I say one more thing about that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Go for Real it. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I think what you hit on there too, I think another thing to keep in mind when you talked about numbers and, and Brett McGrath from Stacking Slabs talks about this a lot, is being less concerned about your total overall numbers and more concerned about the quality of the listener or the, mm -hmm. the, the person, the follower that, that you've got, right? And so it's one thing to have, you know, this, this content that is just broad and you get a bunch of, of followers, but if, I would I would agree with the way Brett describes it is wanting to have 
quality followers who are engaging and, and more interacting and feeling like a part of a community than just look at all of these followers. Cause anybody can buy followers. Yeah. Like right, anybody right, exactly. can, can, you can, you can do things just to get followers or just to get clicks, like you said, but creating authentic content will help you build a quality base of, of readers, listeners, um, community that are much more connected to the message that you're trying to say, which I right. think is ultimately the more valuable piece of that for both yep. them and for, for you as far as getting fulfillment from that content creation. Yeah. And I mean, even just from my personal experience, like there have been TikToks that I've made that I knew were sort of edgy that were going to get people riled up a little bit. And those compared to the ones that are like something that I'm interested in, like, I don't know, there's just something about like, you know, when you get, when you make, and I don't know if you've really experienced this at all, but like you make a video and it's like you, you, you kind of purposely framed it a certain way because you know, people will like, will comment or something. And then, and then you get like comments, you just feel like icky. I don't know what it, I don't know what it is about it. Like, it's just like, like I, there's been a couple of videos where it's like, you know, I think I specifically, I remember one where I made, that was like, I was talking about BGS 10 labels or something like that. And I, I, I just, I was, I don't know. I framed it in a way that I knew was going to get people riled up. And I still even get people commenting on that video to this day being like, I like outrage. And I'm like, I don't even really care that much about this video. Like, and I don't, I don't want to make content that makes people upset too. That's kind of the other thing like that I found from that video specifically is like, and that was a big shift actually that I made. Like when I was making TikToks was like, I don't want to make something that I know is going to upset someone to comment because it's like, there's times where, you know, I, I create content, but I also use content or I also use social media. And it's like, sometimes I'll find a video and I'll be like, Oh my God, I hated that video so much. And it's like, maybe the person didn't do it on purpose, but it's like, if I know that I'm purposely saying something that could get people riled up or maybe, you know, alter somebody's mood, I don't know. It's just not something that I, I love doing. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's something we all try and do a little bit like a clickbaity, but at the same time, it's like, if you're at least trying to be rational, then like that's sort of where, you know, I fell in, I've fallen into that bucket where I've done it purposely. And it, it just isn't, I don't know. It just doesn't hit the same way as like you make a video that you really like and people really help. People also really like it. And it's like, it, I, I like making those videos a lot more. Um, yeah, sure. I definitely, um, there's a difference between coming up with a catchy thumbnail yep. that is going to attract somebody to click on your video or your podcast link based on reality, right? Than creating a thumbnail that is pure clickbait and it has right. something that's like, what are they, what are they going to talk about? And then you click yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah. And they're pretty much not talking anything about what was on there or it's so twisted from what the, what they, what they're trying to portray in the thumbnail, but then their videos really about like that type of video and that type of content creator, I will almost never subscribe to and it will almost go out of my way to avoid watching or listening to. Right. Even though I know there's probably some things that they're saying that I would get value out of because I don't like that approach and I don't want to reward people who take that approach. I, I can't say that I've never done that. <laughs> right, ever. exactly. Same. Um, because I'm sure somebody could go back and find something that I've done that is that is close to that. 
but I do my best, I'll say, to avoid right. misleading titles and thumbnails and things like that. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. I, like I, I'm in the, I'm in the same sort of boat. I mean, like I said, I'm sure there's videos that I've made that have been like that, but I try and try and stay away from it a little bit. I mean, Kamikaze had like a funny comment with uh, <laughs> talking about Com C. So, I mean, like for you, I know you mentioned sports lots a lot and you mentioned Com C. Like, are those kind of the two main places where you're uh, buying and selling or just selling or kind of like, are those, are those like sort of your two main places where you're doing a lot of your business? Yeah. On, from an online perspective, um, sport lots I use for a lot of the, the base and insert cards that I'm selling. Um, you know, I've got a couple hundred thousand cards of inventory on that site and, and I sell a few thousand cards, two to 3000 cards a month on there. Um, Com C is, is another big, big platform. I think I, um, currently have, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look real quick cause I want to give you an accurate number. I don't want to mislead it. I currently have 139,398 cards for sale on ComC. Wow. Um, and I've submitted about 22,000 of those directly that I've sent in, you know, like physical cards I sent in. All of the rest of that inventory is, is things that I've bought and flipped on the site. Um, again, all of that 139,000 cards um, is inventory that's been completely paid for with profits. Um, so I'm a net withdrawer on the site. Um, so that's all been built with profit. So that's a huge site that I use again, flipping for anything. And then from what I've submitted, I primarily submit cards that are between a dollar and $20. And then eBay is the third tier that I use for um, complete sets, factory sets, that type of stuff. Um, some of the more expensive cards that I have to sell that I want to uh, turn around a little bit quicker. Um, other random memorabilia, ticket stubs, um, pins, buttons, you know, any of that kind of oddball type memorabilia things that I, that I get in these collections. And so eBay is another huge um, platform that I use to sell. So um, sport lots, ComC and eBay are my, my three primary um, platforms that I use to sell online. Yeah. And we've, we, we, we've seen, I, I feel like we've, I feel like our industry has really seen so much change over the past few years and over the past, I guess you could say decade, but I mean, I think just even since like 2018, we've seen so much change and, um, you know, I don't think I necessarily would have predicted we would be at where we are. If, if you were to ask me in 2018, uh, maybe I would, if I had the same sort of knowledge, but like from your perspective, like in, you know, a five to 10 year in a five to 10 year window, like where do you kind of see cards going? Like what are maybe, so what are some of your predictions that, uh, in five years we can come back to this video and see if you were right or wrong? Yeah, I, uh, I I typically don't get involved too much in the in the speculation game. Mm -hmm. That that's usually not the the era or the 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 type of thing that I go too far down in. But I think if I if I look back on how things have trended over these last few years, um, I think I'm going to speak just in broad terms because that's really the, all I'm comfortable in saying is we started to see an uptick in the interesting cards starting in probably 2017 with the, the Aaron judge year kind of built with Otani. And we started to um, build the collector base, which the newer base coming in had a higher interest in basketball and fall card. I think than some of the longstanding collectors that had been there kind of prior to that 2016, 2017 window. And so we've kind of continued to see that grow. And so if we look five years out, you know, we had this massive rush peaked, you know, uh, kind of irrational exuberance that we saw 
It's coming back down to a more moderate level. We've had some of those people who are only in it for the money and the only in it for the, the flip game. We've seen them kind of fade away. But I think overall, we're already still at a net higher amount of collectors than what we started with three or four years ago. Mm. And I think based on the efforts that Fanatics is going to undertake and their stated goals of growing the number of collectors by 10x over the next however many years, I don't know if they're going to be successful at 10x. Mm. But if we've already seen growth over the last three and they're going to be putting forth extra focus over the next three to five years, even if we two or three X where we're at, that's still a huge amount of growth compared to the, the number of collectors that exist today or the number that existed two or three, four years ago. And so I feel like in the next five years, we're going to see a greater number of collectors. Um, as far as what's going to be hot five years from now, I've got no idea because <laughs> right, what's right. hot at the moment has already changed about five times in the last two years. So right, exactly. I, I, there's, I have no idea what's going to be the the flavor of the month, um, in another five years, but there'll be something that people are going to chase, and there'll be, um, people who are still passionate about all different kinds of of collectors. My hope is that as more of these new and returning collectors kind of mature in this new era, that what we find is people settle into the niche that they are most passionate about and that they enjoy the most and that that kind of helps create less of the peaks and valleys we've seen as people move from soccer to marvel to mm. basketball to prism to vintage to whatever and we see more of a slow and steady growth as people find their own niches and each of those niches continue to be built up from the growing number of people who are passionate about that type of thing and it's not just chasing one thing after another. That's, that's my hope for what yeah. we see more of in the next five years. Um, I had hopes for the, the, the end of exclusive licenses for manufacturers, but fanatics <laughs> kind of put a big uh, kibosh on that whole idea by taking over the exclusive licenses and consolidating those down uh, maybe even more than what we had seen before. So I don't know that that is going to come to fruition. But um, I think we're, we're going to see more collectors enjoying the hobby over these these next five years. But I think the maturity that's going to come with it is going to lead to a more educated collector base that is not just going to chase trends, but is going to focus in on things that they're passionate about. Yeah, I mean, that's I, that's, I think that's some great insight. And I mean, I, I think too, like, we don't, it's such a, like I said, I think if you were to go back to 2018, even 2019, I mean, even if you were to go back to 2020, like, I don't think, I don't think anyone would have predicted that Fanatics would have came in over the top rope and bought all the licenses and then bought Tops and then, you know, Tops was almost going to go public and then they weren't going to go public. I mean, who knows? It's, a, it, I think that's one of the other kind of exciting things about the industry is that it's, it's kind of always constantly changing. And I mean, so I've got, I've got actually got two more questions for you. So like, I guess like it's sort of similar to the last question. I'll flip it a little bit. So from, for you, like, where do you see sort of, and, and I don't mean to sound like I'm uh, doing, doing like a job interview here, but like, where do you kind of see yourself in, in the hobby within, in the next like five years or so, or even like two or three years, I guess, maybe we'll go a little bit closer. Like, are you doing anything different from where you were maybe a couple of years ago? Or is it, is it like pretty, like you figured out a formula, you figured out a system, you're kind of, you're planning on sticking to it. 
Yeah, I've I've been able to I, I feel so blessed to have been able to continue to kind of scale up the pace and the rate of what I've been doing from a buying and selling perspective and what that's led for me to be able to continue to do from a, a collecting perspective. Um, I kind of look for that to kind of continue to grow over the these next few years as too, or as as we keep going. And so I, I still see myself as an active buyer and seller. Um, will I still be doing the the physical shop thing five years from now? It's hard to say. You know, there's mm -hmm. there's a lot of of time demands that could change what I do there. I think I'll definitely still be um, selling online, um, buying and selling online. I think from a content creation side, you know, I still really enjoy right now. I still really enjoy the um, the writing and the the podcasting and the the video creation. What will that look like in another five years? Um, it's hard to say, but as long as I'm still having fun doing it, I still hope to be uh, to be a presence there. Um, and so I, I think that's going to go in. And and I think you know one of those things that I've learned is for myself as well is just really focus in on the things that you're enjoying and and double down on it and kind of continue to per, pursue those um, those passions and that aspect of your collection and. I'm going to continue to kind of build that out. So, you know, I hope to right now I've, I've built out vintage baseball, vintage tops, baseball sets. Um, I've completed 1967 basically through modern and I've got um, I just finished 1960 and I've got partial sets built for the remainder of the cards, the 61 through um, 66 sets. And so, you know, in another five years, I would hope that I'm able to finally knock knock the rest of those 60 sets off and be moving into the fifties a little bit more. Um, and so there's things like that, that I'll be hopefully continuing to work towards from a personal collection perspective over the next five years. But, um, I hope to be here having conversations like this, talking about what else we've learned in these last five years and kind of what crazy things came out of the, <laughs> out of left field, like the, the fanatics, yeah. um, situation did uh, over the last year or two. So, um, I, I hope to continue to be here um, collecting and sharing stories and sharing experiences and continuing to educate other other collectors as they uh, either come in new or return. Yeah, I love 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 hearing that. I mean, I like I said, I think it's it's fun to kind of I I've, the industry is sort of all you're always sort of on this like the I don't see your pants. I don't think that's the saying, but like, you're always kind of on your toes a little bit. Um, so, I mean, I got one last question for you before we kind of wrap things up here. Uh, what would you say is your dream card? Yeah, I, I, I think if I was going to narrow it down, it would be a continuation of what I just talked about. Right. So I've got this lifelong goal to build the 1952 through present day tops baseball set. Right. And so if I was going to, what is going to be my kind of grail card, my lifelong dream card to own, it's probably going to be a 52 tops mantle. And it's probably going to be the last one that I purchase <laughs> to be able to complete that, that entire set run. And I will, even if I have an opportunity to buy it before then I'll probably save it for last to be the icing on the cake for when I finish my entire vintage tops run, uh, going all the way back to, to 52. And so that's the, the 52 mantle is probably um, what I would say is, is my dream card because the way I envision it, it's going to put the icing on the cake of, of that entire tops run. 
I, that's, oh, that's, I, I love that. That's such a, that's such a, that's such a, that's such a, like a cool goal. I feel like for, you know, especially someone like you, who's kind of that you're, you focus on a lot of like the base sets and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, ah, yeah, that's really, that's, that's a, that's a good, obviously, you know, one of, one of the holy grails of the hobby. So obviously that's going to be uh, definitely a fun day when, whenever that hits, whenever that hits your PC. So, oh, it's going to um, yeah, be I a while. Think, I mean, I'm, I'm 45 yeah, yeah. right now, but I, uh, it may be a 30, 30 years. I might be in my seventies, you know, when, yeah. um, when I finally accomplish that, I don't know, we'll see how things go, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that, that would be, that would be, uh, that would be it. Yeah. That's like I said, it's a holy grail. And I think it's, I mean, it's going to be a, a great card to add to the collection one day. I'm definitely, I'm, you know, hopefully in 30 years content creation still a thing. And I'm excited to hopefully that maybe, you know, there's your Instagram post will be the most liked sports card Instagram post. Cause it's like, you can tell, you can tell this story of the, you know, this, the, the, the dream card basically. Um, yeah. So like I said, I want to thank you so much for coming on, uh, talking about tons of different topics. Uh, let the audience know kind of where they can find you. I know you got the podcast, you're on Twitter, so TikTok, all those places. So just let everybody know where they can find you. Yeah, the the kind of the main landing page is waxpackhero.com. That's where all the written content is, and it's got links to everything else. Um, the podcast is the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute. It's a, available anywhere um, podcasts are found. Um, I also have uh, the uh, it's Mike Summer. The YouTube channel is Mike Summer. It's not Wax Pack Hero. Um, but I, I talk all about it, but, um, the, the links again are on, on waxpackhero.com to get to the YouTube channel as well. And then on Facebook, um, there's a Waxpack hero kind of, it's, it's more focused on my physical shop and I, I more often have updates related to when I'm going to be open or not open or whatever from the physical shop, but that's Waxpack hero on Facebook and then Instagram and TikTok are also Waxpack hero. And I'm pretty active, um, definitely more active on, on TikTok. I'm beginning to get more active on Instagram. I was a little bit slower. I've been a little bit slow on engaging on Instagram <laughs> over the years, but it's becoming a bigger and bigger um, part of, of what I share now as well. So um, the Mike summer on Twitter, like I'm, I'm pretty much everywhere, but the <laughs> yeah, Wack yeah, hero yeah. is, is the biggest um, place to go because it's got links to, to everything else. Yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll put all the I'll have you send me whatever links you want me to put in the description. I'll make sure all those links are in the description too, where they can find you and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, Mike, like I said, uh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I really, it's been a while since we've you know talked face to face. I think probably the 2021 national in Chicago. Yeah, I think maybe we ran into each other there and talked for for a little bit um, outside of the the interview that we did on the podcast early on. So. Uh, appreciate what what you're doing as well and appreciate you having me on absolutely